0: My name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk is Philosophy and Freedom and the subtitle is Truth Does Not Challenge Your Freedom, It Is Your Freedom. Now what does this subtitle mean? What does freedom mean? Well to be free is to be independent, self-reliant, not dependent on anybody or anything for your happiness, to have no needs and not to be subject to anything. When you are free, you are happy and completely fulfilled. And you're only truly happy when you're happy in yourself, with yourself. It is not so when the happiness is dependent on another. You are then a slave to the other. What does truth mean? Well truth is that which is ever the same. It does not change, it's not subject to decay, and it's not subject to improvement, i.e. it's indestructible. So truth is not the same as goodness, because goodness is subject to change. For example, if somebody delivers some soil to your garden, you'll say that's good topsoil. If they then happen to bring in some of it on the bottom of their shoes into your pale cream carpet, (laughs) it's no longer good earth, it's now muck. (laughs) So goodness changes, but the truth doesn't. Thus we are not looking for goodness to set us free, we're looking for truth itself to set us free. And this is highlighted in the story of Adam and Eve from the Old Testament. That when Adam and Eve sinned, their curse was the knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes people, when reading this story, think this is when evil was introduced into the creation. But in fact, it was at this point that goodness and evil was introduced into the creation. And if you suffer from goodness you'll enjoy happiness with a small h. And if you suffer from evil, you'll enjoy misery with a capital M. Now, what did Adam and Eve know before they knew goodness and evil? Did they know nothing? No, what they knew was truth itself. So what is this truth that will set man free? And we look at this later and the third word in the subtitle of the truth does not challenge your freedom it is your freedom is the word challenge why use this word and the reason we use this word is there is a normal belief that a truthful life would be a limited life i.e. it would be restricted i wouldn't be able to enjoy all the pleasures of life if i was a truthful person i would be so truthful they'd never invite me to the party again <laughs> We also believe that it would be an impractical life, that if I was totally truthful, I would get exploited, I couldn't possibly succeed in the business world, and it would certainly get me into trouble with my wife when she asked me how she looked this evening. (laughs) So, we have a fear of being trapped in goodness, a sort of a reluctant saint while everybody else is having a marvellous time. However, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all else will be added onto you. So you don't lose anything with truth. You gain everything. And in the Upanishads, it says it in a different way. It says, one desire satisfied, all desire satisfied. So in following a life of truth, nothing is lost. So to find freedom... We have to find truth. Now, each day, from moment to moment, is this what we are consciously seeking? So when you get out of the bed in the morning, do you say to yourself, I'm going to find truth today? Well, we may not use those words. We may not even believe they're true. However, actually, we are all seeking freedom or we're all seeking truth all the time. But we do not think that this freedom will be found in truth. We are seeking a freedom which is not truth. And since truth and freedom are one and the same, we will never find it. Let us look at this phenomenon that everyone desires to be free. We know to make ourselves free. We learn to drive a car so we can have the freedom of the roads. We love, so that we may be complete and free from partiality or loneliness. And each day, everybody seeks more knowledge and more love. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I hope by the end of today there'll be less knowledge or there'll be less love in my life. And we don't want it on a temporary basis. We want permanent freedom. And we don't want it on a limited or partial basis. We want full or total freedom, so every human being wants total, permanent, limitless freedom all the time. We seek it in everything. We eat to be free of hunger, we drink to be free of thirst, we sleep to be free of exhaustion, we want wealth to be free of poverty, we want security to be free of fear. We invent gadgets and machinery to be free of work. And we invent medicines to be free of disease. The hippie seeks freedom from duties and responsibilities. The tramp seeks freedom from possessions. The alcoholic seeks freedom from reality or pain. The extrovert seeks freedom from silence or discovery of himself. And the introvert seeks freedom from meeting others. Now, if we all seek freedom, and we all seek it all of the time, how come there are so few success stories? How come so few become free? Why do we all fail, or nearly all fail? Well, the desire to be free is not enough. We're all born with this desire, but it's not enough. You also need the knowledge... Of how to be free. If you don't have this knowledge of how to be free then you're ignorant and if you're ignorant you will be bound instead of free. Only wisdom sets a man free. And our knowledge or our wisdom is untrue and incorrect and this is why we never find it. Our means of discovery of freedom have in fact become the end We originally sought to be happy just in ourselves, like a child. Now we seek to be happy with companionship, with money, career, and all these things. So we're now looking for a conditional happiness, but we're not in control of the conditions. And no matter what the conditions are, if the owner of those conditions is not happy in himself or herself, then you cannot be happy. An unhappy person is unhappy in a mansion, in a Ferrari, or with the company of a beautiful woman or man. And why is man not happy in himself? Man is not happy in himself because he's forgotten the truth about himself. Human beings start with a great vision for their life. When they're young, they ask questions like, What sort of a man or a woman will I be? What will I do? What mark will I leave? What will I change during my life? We look at our parents and we say, I love my parents, or generally we say that. I love my parents. But under no circumstances do I want to turn out like them. (laughs) And this is a humiliating fact That nobody wants to be like you. (laughs) It's a remarkable thing. Nobody wants to be like me, but I want people to live with me forever. (laughs) Nobody wants your life. And what does that say for us? that if it was offered to somebody else, they would not take it. We look at our parents and we make all sorts of promises to ourselves. We say, I'll not be trapped like them. I won't argue as they do. I won't work or overwork as they do. I will not be as money conscious as they are. I will always keep my friends unlike them. I will care for my children, understand them more, Listen to them more, and I'll be free. And with these great promises to ourselves, we set out on our lives, on the journey of life. And we sought to attain this freedom, but then we become distracted. And we stop to examine the pleasures of this creation, and then we end up settling for pleasures, for security, for fame, or fortune. And we give up this pursuit of freedom, of real freedom. And we reverse the instruction of Christ to seek ye first the kingdom of God. And we think, I'll just seek everything else first. (laughs) And when I've got it out of the way, then I'll seek the kingdom of God. But unfortunately, death comes first. Then there's no time left. And there's no energy left for us to pursue freedom. And instead of pursuing freedom, we're pursued by responsibilities and by desires. They never let us go. So in the ordinary run of things, we've stopped aiming for the bull's eye. And so you could ask yourself right now, what do you aim for? On a day-to-day basis, what are you aiming for? And if you're not aiming for the bull's eye... You can't expect to hit it. Only those who aim for the bullseye get it in the bullseye. And there's a marvellous statement by Newton. And Sir Isaac Newton would be classified by most human beings as a highly successful human being with a fulfilled life. A person to be admired. But when he was dying, he said, I do not know what I may appear to the world. But to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy, playing on the seashore, and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble, or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Well we have all sold our true and substantial freedom to collect the pretty pebbles of this creation. Well, what in us is bound that we feel bound and what in us is free that we feel free say you take a man and you put him in one of these iron diving suits and you screw on the helmet and then you carry him down to a basement and you lock him into a steel tank and then you close the door behind to the basement and lock it what gets out before you reach the top of the stairs. What escapes on the instant? and What escapes is the mind. That man's mind can be in Barbados before you hit the top of the stairs. It is the mind of man that is bound, and it is the mind of man that goes free. We choose to be bound, and we choose to be free. Nothing in truth can bind man. Only his mind can be bound. Julius Caesar said, The iron chains, the prison walls, the high towers cannot successfully enslave the spirit of man. Man is greater than the cage because he is the creator of that cage. And you cannot bind the creator. Now what is it that binds the mind of man. And it is past knowledge. It is all the thoughts, feelings, attitudes, biases, prejudices, and preconceptions which we have built up or retained from our birth. Because of past knowledge, we do not meet people in an events as if for the first time In fact, we never meet people. We just meet what we know of them. We meet our own ideas in our minds. So let's say you've been invited to a party in the past, and we make it by your auntie, and there's always dreadful food, and the wine is diabolical, and she always gives you a tie which you wouldn't even put on a dog. (laughs) And she asks you all these dreadful questions along comes Christmas again and there's another invitation and you say I'm not going to enjoy that party and you hope that you come down with the flu but there's no such luck (laughs) and you go to the party and it's diabolical and you think you have the gift of prophecy you say I knew it was going to be terrible (laughs) but in fact you didn't go to the party you went to last year's party you didn't go to this year's party you can't eat an apple twice there are no events repeated in this universe the future is full of potential and the past is limited and if you go to last year's party you go to the limited party we meet what we know and we fail to respond to what is actually there and this past knowledge binds us So with past failure, we say, I won't be able to. With past boredom, we say, I won't enjoy. And with past hurt, we say, I will hate. If you think you are bound, you are bound. If you think you are free, you are free. And one of the greatest damning statements that a man can make is I'm only human. We use it to excuse all sorts of ineptitude and selfishness. What does it mean, I'm only human? If you can accept the Bible, to be only human is to be made in the image of God. What's only about that? We pass sentences on ourselves and live in prisons. When a judge passes a sentence, the man or woman is taken away for the term of that sentence. When we pass sentence on ourselves, we say, I'm stupid, or I'm less intelligent than others, and we move into the prison of inferiority. We say, I haven't enough, and we move into the prison of jealousy or envy. We are always passing sentence on ourselves. There's a voice going on all the time. If I asked you to walk up here and just walk up and down, there will be a voice saying, am I graceful or am I like a pregnant duck? <laughs> there will be a voice telling you exactly what you are. But you're not the voice in your head. Most serial killers use this as an excuse for what they do. They say, a voice told me. Well, there's a voice in your head telling you exactly what to do all the time. It just hasn't got around to killing your (laughs) mother-in-law. We pass sentence on ourselves and we create our own prisons and we gladly walk in and we throw away the key. And nobody but nobody can get you out. You have to undo the sentence yourself. I have a sister who was unfortunate to come after three ugly, selfish brothers. And we told her she was stupid. We weren't particularly intelligent, but we told her she was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) So we told her she was stupid, and she believed us. So she did terribly in her exams. And any time she came for help, we laughed at her mistakes and kept on telling her she was stupid. But she had a particular affection for my older brother and one day he came back to announce that he was engaged to this lady and that she was a teacher. And my sister, being fond of my brother, was obviously fond of the fiancé and was inspired by the fact that this lady was a teacher. And my sister is a headmistress of a school now. (laughs) And I would be delighted if she taught my children because she's not stupid. She just took the sentence away. Now you and I have passed many, many sentences on ourselves and sometimes they don't go away. We die with them. Again, I've told this story before, but I was going out with this girl when I was about 22 or 23 and her father told me this story, that when he was a young boy, about five, he was brought down to meet his his auntie and uncle down the country with his other brother and obviously the mother and the father. And the auntie and uncle hadn't seen them for a while, and they created a tremendous fuss over them. And the auntie asked the older brother what he would like for some afternoon tea. Would he like some bread and jam? And the older brother said he didn't like jam. And the auntie thought this was amazing, a little boy who doesn't like jam. So she created an immense fuss over him to try and make him happy with whatever food she had. And she eventually got him eating, and that was fine. The little brother was looking at this and he thought, I'm onto a good thing here. <laughs> so he said to himself, when he was asked, would he like some bread and jam? He said, I don't like jam either. And he got exactly the same fuss and all the care to make sure that he was fully satisfied eating. But he forgot. He thought he didn't like jam. And every time he was asked whether he liked jam, he said no. And when he was about 40... He had a jam-free life now, up to age 40. <laughs> Which is a mild tragedy, right? But at age 40, he suddenly remembered. He remembered the incident. He remembered that it was just a game that he started off with. And as he said to me, he's been trying to make up for it ever since. Both sides of the bread now. Right? Now, it wouldn't be a tragedy if our lives were just free of jam. But to be only human is a tragedy, instead of being human or being yourself. Now, this so-called knowledge, which is gathered and retained in the mind, is for future use. But unfortunately, its fruit is that the present is covered up. So we never meet the present moment. Imagine if the body retained all the food that it took in. What a dreadful mess there would be after a short period of time. (laughs) But we think it does make sense to retain everything in our minds. So we retain all sorts of prejudices, all sorts of opinions and ignorance. And we retain all sorts of things in our hearts, all hurts, things we haven't forgiven people for. But the mind is not for retention of thoughts, but the attainment of reason. And the heart is not for retention of feelings, but for the attainment and expression of love. Thoughts, feelings burden and darken the mind and the heart, and reason and love lighten and enlighten the mind and the heart. Now, how does all this come about? If it's not natural for the mind to retain, and the heart to retain, how does it all come about? Well, there are three causes of bondage, and thus misery. And they are ignorance, inequality, and desire. And they follow in inevitable union. And the fundamental ignorance which man suffers from is ignorance of himself. Who or what am I? Not knowing who I am in truth, I look around to see how others are behaving. And I listen to my parents and my elders because initially I love and respect them. Just like whatever teacher says goes, initially whatever mum and dad says is true. My dad says it's true, so therefore it is true. But unfortunately, we're imitating the ignorant. No child is born with an aversion for housework. No child prefers play to work. No child prefers Saturdays to Mondays, or sun to rain, or any of these things. These are all taught. And they're taught by the ignorant are taught by those into whose care they are entrusted i.e. the parents and the teachers so we imitate and we imitate ignorance not knowing who we are in truth not knowing who we are in truth we see differences everywhere we don't see what is actually there we don't see the substance we see the form And all forms are different. And because they're different, they're not equal. With reason, you will see what is there, and you will see that all is equal. And with love, you will see that all is equal. This is how you can love more than one child equally. If you have four children, their forms are completely different. One might be good-looking, another ugly. One might be intelligent, another stupid. One mightn't be so nice, like you and me, and the other one might be very nice, like other people. <laughs> but that does not mean that you will be loved any less, because love transcends all forms of body, mind, and heart. Love sees the substance. In the case of a child, you see the humanity in the child, or maybe even if you're lucky, you see the divinity in the child. And so you can love these different forms equally. But not knowing who you are, along comes inequality. And with inequality comes desire or preference. Because with the seeing of difference you must prefer one over another. So you're beset with different values. You do prefer play to work. And work is a curse. If you look at a child, and let's say it's a young child, and it enjoys washing up, so it asks you, can I please do the washing up? And then when it gets to the end of the washing up, says, can I do it again? Can I wash the same plates again? You never hear an adult say that.
1: <laughs>
0: never, ever, ever. The adult doesn't even enjoy the washing up. The adult enjoys when it's over. And if there's a lot of washing up, you have a long time to wait. But the child not only enjoys before the washing up, it enjoys the actual washing up itself, and it also remains happy when it's over. It moves in happiness. But you and I are no longer free to enjoy it all. Children don't understand preferences. If you tell a young child, It's your birthday in a fortnight. Are you excited by it? He just looks at you. (laughs) Why wouldn't you be excited now? You're alive now. Why would you confine excitement to two days, like Christmas and birthday? Why not be excited every day? You are bound to pursue what you desire. Although by nature happy, you now pursue it where it cannot be found. Although by nature free, you're trying to create a freedom with that which is bound. And so now the hunt is on for happiness, fulfillment and freedom. Desire is infinite and its fulfillment is limited. If you take any desire that you have, it has never been fulfilled. It keeps moving. When you're a young man or a woman, you might say, well, if I only had $20,000 or $50,000 or $100,000 saved, well, then I'd be happy. Or if I earn $250,000, then I would be happy. But when you get $250,000, then you think, well, I need a pension scheme on top of that. (laughs) And some investments, just in case things go wrong. There is no full satisfaction in desires because desires are for limited things. And if you try to satisfy a desire, you only feed it. A cigarette satisfies the desire for a cigarette, but it only increases the desire for more cigarettes. And this is why we have all the restlessness in this world. We never rest. Always on the move, looking for that ultimate freedom or happiness. Nowadays it gets worse and worse because things have less and less content. If you look at books nowadays most of the imagination is left up to the reader. You get minute character descriptions, you call the main character Clark, you say he's six foot tall, dark and his wife died tragically in a motor accident. You have to fill out the rest yourself. Because there is less and less content, you have less and less contentment. You can't get contentment from absence of content. And therefore there's a need to change continuously. So this is why you have new fashions, new fads, new recreations, new food, new pastimes, new careers, even new husbands and new wives. But limited things provide limited freedom, provide limited happiness. And lots of limited things do not provide full satisfaction, they provide exhaustion. And with exhaustion comes the loss of capacity to enjoy in simplicity. What are the effects of desire? Well, as desires grow stronger, so does misery. The more you want something, the more miserable you will be when you don't have it. And the more fear you will have of losing it. And because you're afraid of losing it, you will hoard it. You will keep it out of use more than you need, while others suffer. You watch children, and initially they have no possession of anything. This is why they take everything. So if they see a bicycle down the road, they bring it home with them. There's no such thing as ownership. Everything is for me. But you and I are possessed by ownership. And little children grow up and they get this idea. So let's say we make it a little boy and he's playing with his train set. And uh, he also has a teddy there, but he's not noticing the teddy. The teddy's just lying there. He's playing with his train set. And his sister comes in and says, I want to play with the teddy. He grabs it, stuffs it under his arm and continues to play with a train set because it's his teddy. And even if I don't want to use it right now, it's mine. You'll notice that word comes in very quickly. It's mine. The second effect of desires is that they narrow our lives. The common belief is that desires expand your life. But in fact, desire narrows your life. In fact, with desire you set aside your vision for life, you can set aside dignity, honor, and what is known to be true, just to fulfill your desire. Have you ever really, really wanted to get to an airport on time? And there's a lot of traffic on the road. You're willing to risk your life You're certainly willing to risk the lives of others because they're in the way of fulfilling your desire. Have you ever seen a child dragged by a mother because the mother is in a hurry? So we set aside love, we set aside honor, and we set aside knowledge just to fulfill our desires. You notice this. Say you happen to be on a diet and you think, I'm not eating cream cakes. You make this statement as if you were either Hitler or Churchill. It has such, it has such certitude about it. I am not eating cream cakes. Does everybody know that? And then of course somebody, you know, happens to come along with cream cakes and you say, well look, I haven't eaten one for a week, so one won't do any harm at all. And you convince yourself, you overturn the knowledge that you don't need this cream cake or you shouldn't eat it or whatever. And you overturn it with this desire because desire overrules reason. And then having eaten the cake, the desire is now satisfied and it subsides and the knowledge returns. So you've got this bloated, regretful, guilty entity looking at an empty plate and a full stomach. Some people sacrifice their very life. They sacrifice health, family and friends just to fulfill desires. A solicitor friend of mine who's 48 and I met him last year and he'd been working very, very hard. And I asked him, how was business last year? And he said, excellent. Next year I'm really going to start living my life. Unfortunately, I didn't have the courage to tell him that he's lost the knowledge. It makes no difference that he's got the money now. He doesn't know how to live anymore, so he won't next year. People do this. They say, I just give up ten years of my life to accumulate, and then I'll enjoy it all. But who tells you that you'll get your soul back in ten years' time with which to enjoy your life? We think our desires expand our life, but they only narrow it. There is only one desire that the human being can have which will expand their lives and that is the desire for liberation or freedom. The third effect of desires is that it distorts all our values. And as I said, we forget the substance and we value the form. So let's uh, make it a man and he thinks he is an engineer which is just a function. It's not an entity. It's just a function. And somebody makes the engineer redundant and the man thinks he is redundant. He says, I am redundant. But you can't make a human being redundant. You can only make a function redundant. Forms are toys for playing with. And the idea is to enjoy this play, but you should never take it seriously. Years ago... A lady in the school in Dublin came in and she told a story about her son, who follows a particular football team in England. And when she came home from philosophy class, and he was about 10 or 11, she found him in tears, crying. His team had been beaten 4-0 at home, which for him was a tragedy. And she said to him, but it's only a game. And he said, Mum, you don't understand. See, for him it wasn't a game. It was extremely serious. And when somebody stands on the sandcastle of a child, the child will cry and you'd say to them, but it's only a sandcastle. And they think you don't understand. But people stand on our sandcastles and we get really annoyed because they are not sandcastles. These are very important things. Many years ago I had this garden, this house in fact, which had a garden, a front garden, And I've made a particular effort to beautify the garden. So I planted hundreds and hundreds of tulips of all colors, pure colors, mixed colors, tall ones, small ones. And I waited with great expectancy for all these tulips to emerge and beautify my garden. And they all came up and they were beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And one afternoon I took my wife and children and we went out. And the next-door neighbours have two children. So you can anticipate the ending to this story. <laughs> two little boys. They also have a scissors in that family.
1: <laughs> so when I came
0: back, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of beautiful tulip heads, all with about an inch stalk on them, lying at the front door. And a little boy came running over to me and he says, I've cut them all for you. If I ever get him,
1: <laughs>
0: I'll cut his head off. <laughs> but the little boy who cried at the football match could look at me and say, they're just tulips. And I'd say, they're not just tulips. All our values get distorted. And the last thing is, we desire to be free But in fact, we're bound to our desires. We must have the object of our desire to relieve us of our misery. But there's nothing in this creation which has any sticking substance. The only thing which sticks things to us is the desire. Once the desire is gone, they hold no attraction. And the last effect of desire is that everything has a price. We exchange rather than give, and we give in order to receive, and we love in order to be loved. Sometimes we demand, in fact, to be loved first, before we will express our love. And because nothing is given freely, we enjoy no freedom. If you cannot give it for nothing, you are bound to it. A lady who went to visit the Shankaracharya, the man whom the school went to for its advice. This lady decided to buy a present for him, so she bought him these magnificent chocolates. And she presented them to the Shankaracharya. He thanked her for them, and a minute later a man came into the room, and he gave the box of chocolates to the man. And she protested, but they were for you. And he said, did you not give them away a few minutes ago? If return is required, then you are dependent on the return. And you have no control of the return. You cannot make the other person want your present. Just because you love them, it doesn't mean that they will love you. So, we are bound by our desires, which come from a perception of inequality which comes from the ignorance of who we are in truth. So how are we to become free? Well externally, that is in relationship with others, in relation to this creation, we need to understand the fundamental nature of this creation. This creation is designed on dependency. You can achieve nothing by yourself. Freedom is achieved through unity with everybody else, not through independence or isolation from everybody. And there's an example that can show this, and it's from the philosophy course. There was a king, and he decided he would throw a great feast for all his subjects, and he initially invited the peasants to come and dine as they wished and satisfy all their desires. But there was one condition to enjoying this feast, You had to wear a bamboo jacket. And for those of you who haven't been at such a dinner party, a bamboo jacket has bamboos going down like this. So you can't bend your elbows. Your hands are like this. So the peasants donned the bamboo jackets, and they attempted to eat. And of course, they failed miserably, and uh, broke out squabbling, and were asked to leave the feast in disgrace. So the king then took the bamboo jackets sent them off to the dry cleaners brought them back again and he invited the merchants to the party. They put on the bamboo jackets and made an equal hames of the whole thing. And then he invited the princes of the kingdom and they also made a dog's dinner of the whole thing. And then he invited the wise men of the kingdom and they put on the bamboo jackets and they fed each other. And all were fully satisfied now, you can take this story at the level of economics, you can take it at the level of government, or you can take it at the level of this creation. And I just take it at the level of creation. The king is God. You can be a peasant, a merchant, a prince, or a wise person. It's up to you. And the bamboo jackets are the laws of this creation. And if you obey the laws, then all are fulfilled and all are satisfied. And if you break the laws, then all go hungry. Hungry for freedom and for true happiness. Shankaracharya said, If people could be made to understand that caring for oneself is bondage, while feeding others is freedom, then life would be easy for all. This is the essence of family It's the essence of society. Society is merely a large family. And this world is just the human family. So that is external freedom, i.e. in our relationships with others. We simply care for others. But how are we to enjoy internal freedom? Freedom from limitations of body, mind and heart. If you feed a car with the wrong fuel then it won't go. If it's a petrol car, it needs petrol. Diesel will stop the engine. So man has to feed his body, he has to feed his mind, and he has to feed his heart, or else he seizes up. And how you feed a body is you feed it with measure. So you do not eat too much, and you do not eat too little, and you do not sleep too much, and you do not sleep too little. You do not work too much or too little or play too much or play too little. Measure gives health to the body. For the mind, you feed the mind with reason. And that purifies the mind. And you feed the heart with love and not feelings. And that purifies the heart. And when the mind and heart of man is purified... Then they reflect the innermost world of man. There's no distortion. So the inner world appears as the outer world. Just like light shining through a glass. And what is the innermost world of man? Well, it's spirit. And spirit is freedom. It is happiness. And it is eternal. It never loses it, and it never gains it. But the mind and heart in the wrong state deny it, and in the right state reflect it. When mind and heart are purified, they reflect this freedom and happiness. And the spirit of man is first, it's non-dependent, and in truth nothing can affect it. And this is where absolute freedom lies And this is where man should live. He should live in spirit. The truth about man is that he is already free. You and I are totally free. But we just need to realize it. We're like somebody with the glasses on the forehead, not knowing that they're there and searching everywhere else for them. But they're actually there. Our freedom and our happiness is here right now. It is your very nature. The Shankaracharya says that freedom is ever available, but is not being availed of. And why is it not being availed of? Because having forgotten that it is there, we're looking for it somewhere else. And you can never find it until you stop looking somewhere else. Until this is realized, the search for freedom will go on. And in the words of Jesus, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And the Shankaracharya describes this absolutely beautifully. He says, If there is a desire for truth, no doubt there will be barriers. But in course of time they will be overcome." The desire for truth is like a river, like the River Ganges. She starts somewhere with a small beginning, facing all sorts of high mountains which hold her up. But she fills up and flows over them, intertwines around them for nearly 200 miles of high, low and deep mountainous ranges. And she finds her way to the ocean to which she belongs. These mountains are also there in search of truth, but have now become established as traditions and cannot move. Even in their earnestness, they become obstacles. Like all the traditions of philosophical or religious thought, they lead to a point and stop. But one need not be lured by high peaks, nor sink into deep ravines, but keep going. One day truth will be found, no attraction howsoever lofty, no obstacle howsoever deep, could force a spirit to stop if the search for truth is true. Spirit will find truth one day. So do not be like a little boy or a little girl playing on the seashore, and diverting yourself in now and then finding a smoother pebble, a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lies all undiscovered around you. Remember, you need not be lured by high peaks, nor sink into deep ravines. You just keep going. One day truth will be found, one day you will find truth, and when you find truth, you will be free. And that's the end of the talk. But thank you. Well.
1: What questions would you like to ask? Sorry, yes. I think some people are born
0: uh, freer than others. Yes. Absolutely. The question is, are some people born freer than others? And the the answer is absolutely. You can see this by behaviour. Some people have what are called addictive personalities. So they can take one or two drinks and then they find they're alcoholics and other people can drink freely and not be addicted. And you see some people, and it's evident that, say, anger is Seriously uncontrollable for them. And other people are very even-tempered. So yes, it is a fact that you could say some people appear to have an easier path than others. But the fact of the matter is, we we'll just make it this. If you're born ugly, there may be very little you can do about it. Uh, ugly at a physical level. But anything that you have in your heart can be purified. So there's no such thing as an uncontrollable temper. It may be difficult to control. It may be easily provoked and all that sort of thing. But the man, the person, is greater than the temper. And the same way with ideas in the mind. Every human being has access to love. And love will purify the heart. And every human being has access to reason. And reason will purify the contents of the mind. So some people may have to work harder. But that's all it is. You have to work harder. It's like if you've got little legs you have to take two steps for every one step that people with big legs have. But you've got legs. So it's not that you would ever look at a human being and say that person is beyond redemption or they've no hope or they should feel sorry for themselves. It is very hard to take any point in life and say my life is better than other people's. Very hard. You might be able to say it with your dying breath. You might be able to evaluate it at that point and say, this life has been better than other people's. But you don't know what faces you. You may have had it easy so far. You take like Muhammad Ali, on paper anyway, looked like a great life. Actually, he says it is a great life. But you know, a lot of the glory was taken away from him. So you don't know. But the thing to realise when you look at freedom don't look at other people's bondage look at your own the idea is for you to become free and if you can become free you can help other people it's like again, you just take the Alcoholics Anonymous only those who have become free of alcohol are in a position to help those who are still bound by alcohol so if you want to be of any help to anybody else you have to go free first of all does that answer the question, or is that right? Yeah. Yes, anybody else?
2: Listening to there reminded me of two lines of poetry I remember reading years ago. Two men looked out from prison bars, one saw more the other stars. Developing from that, I suppose, like listening to you, freedom is more an attitude of mind. We're not talking about freedom in the context of the bondage situations. situation. So say that somebody in absolute slavery still be a free in maybe a thing. Does that
0: really actually uh, use it? Absolutely. A man can be in a prison and be totally free. I remember when I was about 15 or 16 and having a spot on my nose and not going out that weekend. Well, that's a pathetic form of bondage, but that's the way it was. (laughs) 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 I still stay in every so often. But anyway, so you can be bound by anything. You could be bound by past events, tiny little events. I told this story before, so if some of you have heard it, you'll just have to put up with it. When I was ten years of age, I was in a, a boarding school, an Irish-speaking boarding school. And this was a tough school. And I was a sweet, gentle little boy. Did you see that. <laughs> if I can only get the guy to the tulips. But anyway, I was a sweet little boy, and I was down this uh, school... And we had a choir master who, for the slightest provocation, would give you 40 lashes of uh, leather. Anyway, there were about 40 of us in the class, and we were singing away. I think there were hymns in praise of the glory of God. So beautiful music, beautiful words. However, there was somebody in the room singing out of tune. And despite his best efforts, whoever it was... He couldn't get the person into Joe. Didn't know who it was, but the person didn't come into Joe. And he said, "I'm going to discover who this is." So he listened again, and he said, "It's not on the left side of the room." So twenty boys on the left. You be quiet. So there are now twenty boys on the right. I was one of the boys on the right. So we now had twenty-one pairs of keenly interested eyes staring at twenty frightened little pairs of eyes. And he discovered that it wasn't in the front half of those 20 boys. So we now had 30 non-singing boys, very happy non-singing boys, and 10 frightened little rabbits, of which I happened to be one of them. I got the numbers wrong, but anyway, we got it down to four. There were four of us. I can remember all the eyes, all the eyes looking, and the sweat pouring down my face. Now, all four of us were probably singing out of tune at this stage, right? (laughs) Uh, So he said to me, he said, sing. Sing, just sing on your own. And I said, I won't. And he said, you will. And I said, I will not sing. And whatever the the determination was in my voice, instead of getting the 40 lashes of the leather, he said, well, then you will have to leave this class. So I said, right. And I left it. And for the rest of the year, didn't have to sing. However, as I left that room, I said, nobody will ever do this to me again. Ever, ever do this to me again. And so for 20 years I never sang. Even when I was at Lansdowne Road and there was another 44,000 people singing the National Anthem, I was always afraid that the other 44,000 would be looking at me as I tried to sing the National Anthem. But that is a terrible thing. First of all, for this man to be so brutal. But secondly... One held in one's heart that event for 20 years. It's actually only when I joined the School of Philosophy that I decided I would join the choir of the School of Philosophy. There'd be nobody to do that to me there and started to sing again. But we do these sort of things. Somebody says you're clumsy and you decide, well, I'll never dance then. Or somebody says to you, your brother is very good at mathematics and you think that means I'm not so good at mathematics and you think I am less than him or her or whatever it is so bondage is in the mind and it comes from the past and you can drop it on the instant on the instant you can carry it for 30 years and you can drop it just like that and again to tell a story a young lady came to me her father had died maybe say two months previously And she was full of grief. And she said the worst aspect of it was she'd been down in Kerry and in a bar, a crowded bar. Now she'd been crying for her father for a number of weeks and she was down in this bar in Kerry, which was crowded and she wanted a drink. And she saw herself putting her hand up and screaming to the bartender, a pint of Budweiser please. And she was trying to get his attention for this pint of Budweiser. And she said, I suddenly saw that in that moment I had completely forgotten that my father had died. Completely forgotten. And this absolutely horrified her that the desire for a pint of Budweiser could displace the memory of her father. But the point about it is a pint of Budweiser can displace the memory of a fantastic father. The truth of the matter is you can drop the past with anything. You only have to come into the present moment. It can be a bar, it could be a church, it could be sitting down in the sitting room, you can be watching a football match, and your whole past falls away. And so freedom is never in the past. There is no freedom in the past, and there's no freedom in the future. Freedom is now. If you can't get it now, you will never have it. Now is where freedom is. And everybody can be free now. Everybody can. Because now you have no past and you have no future. Yes, anybody else?
2: just to return to the first question there about um, some people have been born more equal or more uh, free yes. than others. I would have thought that um, I would have been born equally free and it would have been what happened subsequently that would have lessened the freedom.
0: Well, there are various theories and so on and I can't prove which one is true. So you could say that if you look at all little babies, you know, they all look sort of, you know, very cuddlesome and uh, loving and all that sort of stuff. But traits appear very, very quickly, which is very hard to relate to events in the life of the child. Very, very hard. So, and i, mean, I just make up a dramatic situation, so you take sort of, you know, identical twins, and they, you know, they live in close proximity, but one of them happens to have a much nicer temperament than the other, very, very quickly. So nature versus nurture. Yeah, exactly. I mean the nurturing has a colossal effect, but it depends what you're nurturing also, the the substance that's there. I'm just going to develop your question on a bit. The possibility is that in each one of us there is both good and bad to a significant degree. Much beyond our worst dreams, our greatest dreams, and beyond our worst dreams. So if I was to say to anybody in this room, is there anybody here who has a hatred for Jewish people? Hopefully, none of us have any hatred for the Jewish people. And we'd say, no, no, I have nothing against Jewish people at all. Totally delightful people. And yet, if we were all born in Germany around 1920, let's say, we're now 19 years of age, some of us would be in the Nazi party. Some of us from this room would be the environment would have awakened in us latent tendencies. You don't think that. That's why the company you keep is so important. And that's why parents are always concerned about the company their children keep. That the company a person keeps is the people they hang around with, the television programmes they watch, the books they read, the music they listen to, the thoughts they play with in their mind and their feelings that they allow to grow in their heart. That's who you keep company with. And if you feed that, you can awaken in you all sorts of tendencies which wouldn't manifest in good company. So you'll find this, that people in good company tend to behave better than they do in bad company. So it's very important to keep good company. That doesn't mean you go around saying bad company, you know, uh, that type of thing. But it's important to keep good company. It's very important when you're young because of no <coughs> discrimination. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you leave a, a glass of milk and a glass of Coca-Cola in a room with a child, you won't find a child coming out of the room five minutes later with the milk, saying this is very nourishing and good for my teeth he doesn't have discrimination he won't say this is good for my bones I'd probably be six foot tall he's only got taste to go by so for a child because there's this inability to discriminate at the level of what is true and what is false the parent has to do the discrimination for them in the form of ensuring that they keep good company but as an adult you have your own responsibility you have to look at yourself And you'll find this, that there's some company that you keep. And when you're with them, you're agitated. You're always agitated. Or you always leave them and you're depressed. You only have to talk for five minutes and you feel depressed about life. And there's other people that, they have a different effect on you. Curries affect some people's stomachs. They shouldn't eat curries. Some company has a bad influence on people. And one needs to be careful about it. Does that help, or? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Sorry, you were going to. Uh, no, I just want
2: to say, do you not think that there are latent feelings in all of us? Oh, absolutely. It's not actually just good people, bad people. It is that any person, whatever their genes are, feels threatened. You react to the threat of other peoples.
0: Well, it doesn't have to be true. It, it can be just simply bias. That's what I mean. I'm
2: going back to your idea yeah. of you know, children playing with good, in front of comments, yeah. companions. So it's bias, but it's latent bias, because this is newness. Yes, absolutely.
0: As you say, it's latent bias. But what you can do, just as if you're an adult, there may be foods you haven't tasted, and when you try them out, you come out in spots. In other words, there's a latent allergy to that particular food. You will also find that there may be latent allergies to particular ideas and particular feelings. And so one needs to be very careful what you feed the mind with. Just as you take care of what you feed the body with, one needs to be very careful as to what you feed the mind with and what you feed the heart with. But my point is
2: that the feelings of animosity, indeed of anti- Whatever, are not good feelings
0: absolutely not, not good not feeling. feelings I agree with you 100% but they're not coming from any source except
2: you just said, the media orientation but they're not really they're coming from oneself
0: absolutely, oh, that is the point they are coming from oneself but it's from what is outside activates them
2: why?
0: because they themselves? don't manifest it's like this I'm here in the company of people who speak English so I'm speaking English. If I was in France, I would make pathetic efforts to speak French. The environment would draw out whatever limited French knowledge I do have. What you'll find is this, that the environment draws out from you what is contained there. To give a very simple example, you'll find that, or at least I find, that depending on the company I keep, different personalities emerge. Now I'm going to go back a few years in time. So when I was in a rugby club, when I used to play rugby, there was a certain rugby persona that used to manifest in the club. So when we were either showering or I was screaming for my pints of Budweiser, right? the sort of conversations we had were about whether I would ever have a sports car, whether a drink was unfairly priced, whether Budweiser was stronger than Smithix, and things like that. Now, and I'm going to exaggerate now, when my mother-in-law used to come to the house, I never discussed with her how many pints of Budweiser I could drink in one night. But I used to discuss the education of children, stability of home life, the care of the young, the care of the old is even much more important. (laughs) All (laughs) All those sort of things. And if when I was with the bank manager, I certainly didn't talk about how much... Drink I could hold, and I didn't really talk about my mother coming to live with us, but I would talk about prudence, honesty, integrity, a desire not to be overborrowed. Oh, wonderful statements like that! So you find that different people emerge depending on the environment. So you've got to be careful about the environment you find yourself in, because that would produce a certain person.
2: But we're all part of the environment.
0: But you can choose your environment. Just like when you go to a restaurant, you don't have to eat everything that's on the menu. No, but you
2: have to... You, you, you have a, if you live in a, in a world, in an environment, you have to either be partisan to the culture of the environment or not.
0: You no, know, what you can do is just as you select the best from the menu, you can select the best from the environment. That's what you give your attention to. It is possible... To read the whole newspaper. Or that it's possible to select that which is beneficial to read. And the same with television. And the same with everything. same with company you keep. You can... And i just give an example. If <coughs> people are having malicious or spiteful or negative comments about people... You can change the conversation. It's not a matter of walking away and saying, You're a bad company for me. You know, it's not like that. But you can, recognising that this conversation is useless and ridiculous you can uplift it.
1: It's nothing to do with our allies that are acknowledging or, as you said earlier on, there is goodness and bad. Yes. As Thomas Piner said, there's a correlation between what's in. It's either opportunity and inclination. I might have the (laughs) inclination of the opportunity and the opportunity not the inclination. Yes. The human being
0: is granted two things. One is to love that which is good which is truly good i.e. he enjoys bringing happiness to others and to himself he actually enjoys that he can actually be happy doing things which don't make him happy but which bring happiness to others like a father going to a circus he's not particularly interested in watching jaded old lions going around in circles but the delight on the child's face makes him happy So the human being is granted this facility of love which motivates him. The second thing that he's also granted is the power of reason. So he can discriminate between what is good and what is bad and what is true and what is false. Now if you're granted these things you have an obligation to use them. You have an obligation. So I I just take the old curry example. If somebody eats curries three days a week and three days a week has an upset stomach and they're now 72 and they're still saying, this upset stomach's been killing me all my life. You say, you're an idiot. You need to discover what's the cause. And then avoid that cause. Now man has that ability. Can you imagine if you had no reason? No power of discrimination. That you couldn't tell the difference between big and small. Black and white. That you couldn't tell when you had enough to eat. Life would be chaotic. Now the truth of the matter is you have this gift of reason. But it, it has to be used. It has to be developed. It's like if you don't use your arms, you'll find they get very thin and they lack strength. There is a fantastic aspect of nature. And it's reflected in the body. If I tie my right arm behind my back and I don't use it, what the body does is it withdraws nourishment and support for that arm because it has no use And the minute I begin to use it again, the whole body now begins to feed it again. In fact, it will feed it to the degree that I use it. And creation is exactly the same. If you will not give love, love is withdrawn from you. You get a real thin little emaciated hairy heart. (laughs) Just like a thin emaciated hairy arm. If you will not use reason, then reason is taken from you. Nature withdraws what you will not use. Which is a fantastic But if you use it, it will give you more. This is one of the famous statements by Christ. I can't remember the precise words. But, Unto those who have it, more shall be given. We always think, God, that sounds very unfair. <laughs> but there's the reason. If you have reason and you use it, you will get more. And if you have little and you don't use it, even that will be taken away from you. So it's not unfair.
1: I'm just thinking back. I'm still thinking about your solicitor.
0: (laughs) My poor solicitor, yes.
1: Much of all of this is a gift. If I have a reason, and I know that my vankara, or my ego, is not really who I am, if my reason tells me that, how do I go through life for so long, or how do I not get from there to there? Is it not a gift? Is it not all? No,
0: no. If you are very overweight and there's a cream cake in front of you and you decided, uh, are three cream cakes and you've already eaten two, it's not a gift that you don't eat the third one. It's not, you know, divine grace which binds your hands to your side, you know, puts a bamboo jacket on you so that you don't eat the third one. For example, if you have money and you use it to make armaments or trade in drugs or something like that. Well, that's an abuse of a gift. You have the gift of love and you have the gift of reason. Every human being has. It's your responsibility what you use it for. Some people use reason to accumulate wealth. That's all. Some people use it to discover the truth. Now, to take it within the Christian teaching, to take it from any tradition you want to, but it is interesting that all the great master teachers of the universe have said things like seek ye first the kingdom of God and all else Indicating that man has a purpose, a primary purpose and a secondary purpose. Now in philosophy, the way it is put, that man's primary function is to come to know himself. And his secondary purpose is to enjoy the glories of this creation. And if you try it the other way around, you fail at both. But if you do it the first way, which all the master teachers have said, you get both. So one is a total lose situation, the other one is a win win situation. Now, we find this incredibly difficult. Even though they're all master teachers who have told us these things. We say, Oh no, hang on a second. Because we are certain of our possessions, I have them and I enjoy them. They're yummy. And how do I know I discover the truth? So I'm not willing to take the risk. One of the great difficulties about the world today is that there are so few truthful men and women. And if there were truthful men and women, people would gain confidence in seeking the truth. The Shankaracharya actually died a couple of years ago, and there's a new Shankaracharya. And he said, what the world needs today is men and women of steady knowledge and wisdom. Living examples of people who have discovered the truth. Now, if they happen to be miserable, dreadful human beings, well then do not imitate them. But if they have found freedom and happiness, you will want to emulate them. So, if you have reason, and if you discover that the purpose in life is to find that pearl of great price, or whatever way you want to put it. Well, then you have an obligation. Go find it. And then tell everybody what it's like when you do find it. And then others will go looking for it. If you could tell people that you were perfectly happy, the first question they would ask you is, "How?" just tell me how you've managed it. Everybody wants it. So what's necessary is for people to demonstrate it. Demonstrate it and everybody will want it. And then, if you want to, and you've used the word gift, you can speak about it as a gift, but you earn your gifts. Let's take sunlight. Let's say we say sunlight is free. Is that all right? Sunlight is free. And so if you have windows in your house, the sunlight will pour into your house. You don't have to pay for it. But if you don't keep your windows clean, less sunlight will get into your house. Is that all right? So you could say you earn the sunlight in your house by keeping your windows clean. So maybe it is all a gift, but you have to earn your gifts. <laughs> yeah. That's another way of looking, and uh, it's not invalid.
1: I was yes, reading something there some time back, to a doctor in Ireland that has done a lot of work with cancer patients, Luke right. Carney, uh, his book, and uh, even when the patients are there and they're almost dying, and they're getting it across to them, and even at that stage. They're letting people know that I'm more than my body, more than my mind, are still a person who they really are. So, if you're a solicitor at 46, it could be that 86 and at this stage. we still, some people, it might come to that before we really
0: Absolutely. Isn't it terrible that you have to get cancer in your body before you face the question, am I more than my body? I mean, why not face the question when you're in a nice, healthy body? I mean, the the lessons don't have to be so hard. They don't have to be so hard. The other interesting thing is there's nothing wrong with adversity. There's nothing wrong with it at all. It's what you do with it. Adversity is a terrible thing if you do nothing with it. If you make full use of it, it's no different than good fortune. There's a famous story about this one of the most famous women in Indian history is a lady called Kunti and she was a devotee of Krishna Krishna was dying and because Kunti was so devoted to him he granted her a boon and she said grant me adversity and even though Krishna was totally wise he was a little bit confused by this (laughs) by this request that somebody on being granted a boon could have said, (coughs) grant me adversity. So he asked her, why? He said, Kunti, why do you wish adversity? And she said, because I only thought of you in adversity. The great gift of adversity is that it makes you seek beyond the adversity for an answer. so you don't have to go around cutting your arms off so that you have got adversity <laughs> but you do not have to reject it when it happens you can claim the opportunity yes anybody else I
2: wonder though yeah. speaking about truth I suppose the big problem is the perception truth I think like justice is a fixed start but we have different perceptions and that inevitably leads to controversy and shabby's <laughs> What's the reaction of
0: that one? if you want to see the truth you have to be true to yourself first of all it has to be the real you who looks in order to see the truth and again if I can give a couple of examples which I've given before but uh, when we came back from our honeymoon there was a very striking moment where my wife was standing here my father-in-law was standing there and I was standing here my wife was between my father-in-law and myself and uh, she was showing him photographs of the honeymoon and I saw him look at her and there were tears in his eyes there were no tears in my eyes but there were tears in his eyes and I suddenly saw a father who saw a daughter a daughter whom he so-called lost Is that all right? He saw a daughter. And I looked at my wife and I couldn't see a daughter. All I could see was a wife. And sometimes I look at my little children and they see a mother. They're looking at a mother and I don't know who they're looking at. I don't know that mother. I just know a wife. And sometimes I see her sisters looking at her and they see a sister and I see friends looking at friends and all sorts of things like this. Now, the truth of the matter is, If I insist on being husband, I will only know wife. And if I can just use my wife's name, Anne is much more than a wife. So if I only know wife, I only know her in part. So to know more of Anne, I have to go beyond being husband. And the truth of the matter, am I only a husband? Of course not. There's much more to me than a husband. So why look with only husband's eyes? I mean, if you want to see something, you would use both eyes fully. So the question then is, well, what am I? Am I a husband? Well, if I'm a husband, I only see wives. If I think, well, I'm a Dubliner, then I think all the other people in Ireland are inferior. If I think I'm Irish, then I only see Michelle Smith. I mean, I can't remember who came second in those races. Anybody give me the names? No. Because... I didn't see the race. Only an Irishman saw the race. If I think I'm European, I think the orphanage situation in Romania is terrible, but the orphans in South Africa don't affect me to the same degree. I don't think about it as much. So, even being European isn't big enough. I've gone from husband all the way to being Dubliner to being Irishman to European, and still I can't see things as they are. So the only way to see things as they are is to see them as a human. Now, interestingly enough, that's what I am. So it's not a very difficult thing to do, to see things as a human, since you are one. And what's a human being? Well, again, I'm just going to take it from the Christian tradition. Something that's made in the image of God. So if I want to see things as a human being, I have to see things as God sees them. So how does God see things? It's an interesting question. (laughs) And do you think that if he was looking that he would see with bias and prejudice and he would see partiality? Or do you think he would see with love and knowledge and all these things? And then I discovered actually that's very interesting sure I have love I also have reason and knowledge. So maybe that's how I can do it. So if I could fill my heart with love, and fill my mind with reason, maybe I would see things as they really are. So that's how you do it. (laughs) Yes, one last question. Which normally kills off all questions. (laughs) But if there is a last one. Right.
1: Um, I admire the fact that you have caught a scripture so often and going back to my youth I think we all heard that that was a question asked over there we're all born with these traits and another one was tell me your company and I'll tell you who you are I heard that as I was going on and another one was You can live in the world without becoming
0: part of it. Yes, that's right. So
1: everything you have said tonight has grown very true with me.
0: Yes, exactly. Well, it just shows you you've all been ripped off. You've paid four quid for (laughs) things that that you, you already know. I'll finish with this. What you said is absolutely true. Absolutely true. But somehow we've gone deaf. Somehow we've forgotten all the things we were told. Or we're deaf to them. Now, I'm not going to blame anybody for this. But when I joined the school of philosophy at 24, I could not read the Bible. I couldn't read it. I was so biased. So unbelievably biased. I used to react to it. It was terrible. Now, it just so happens that before Christmas all the leaders of the schools of philosophy around the world, of which there are 37, gathered together for three weeks to study philosophy in England. And for three weeks we studied the conversations of Shankaracharya, this man that the school went to and the new one that it now goes to. So for three weeks studied these words, trying to work out what does he mean. And because I had to give a talk... Last night, on philosophy in the third millennium, I found a book by the Dalai Lama, which was called Ancient Wisdom, Modern World, Ethics for the Third Millennium. So I read half of it over Christmas. And on New Year's Eve, the school in Dublin put on an event where the four Gospels were read. So it started at eight o'clock in the morning and finished at quarter to twelve that night. And the Gospels were just read continuously, with short, very short refreshment breaks. So the four Gospels were read. I was there for the day, so I heard the four Gospels in their entirety, which was just amazing. And the next day, I was reflecting on this. That I'd heard some conversations of Sri Shankaracharya. I read half a book by Dalai Lama, and I'd heard the four Gospels of Jesus Christ. And it became absolutely self-evident to me that the words of any of these men would cure the world of all its problems. There are no economic problems. They're all spiritual problems. If you love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength, and you love your neighbour as yourself, nobody will starve. There is enough for everybody this great feast has bamboo jackets you just have to obey the laws there is no end to the scriptures available to man if you remain biased to Christ, it doesn't really make much difference pick up the Dalai Lama, if you remain biased to him pick up Sri Shankaracharya I can give you a list, 50 different sets of teachings and they all lead to the same point find one that connects with your heart practice the words whatever that teacher says and you will discover the truth and it will set you free and you'll help others
1: so, that's it thank you very much